And let's take our Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, we're looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1034. Page 1034. And as always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, once more, we want to express our gratitude to you for allowing us to gather as a church family. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you and to fellowship with one another. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word and especially the book of Revelation. We pray as we consider the 11th chapter of this book today that you would give us a clear understanding of its teachings, that you would help us to receive the teachings and help us to understand how this passage applies to our life in the here and now. Might we walk away from this service a more spiritually robust people, people with a deeper faith, a greater hope in you. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us throughout our Revelation series, you know that most of this book is a prophecy about the coming day of the Lord. And because of that, most of this book is taken up with narratives of divine judgment. And yet you also understand that the day of the Lord is not solely about judgment. It's also about God's salvation. And so every once in a while, we find a pause in the judgment narratives and the author highlights God's intentions to save during this great day. So, for example, back in chapter 7, there was a pause between God's sixth and seventh seal judgments. And in this pause, the Apostle John told us about God's plans to save a multitude of ethnic Israelites. Well, today's passage is very similar. Here in Revelation chapter 11, we have another break in the judgment narrative. This one falls between God's sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. And once again, the focus is upon national Israel. Here in today's text, we learn that God doesn't just plan to save Israelite souls in that great day, but he also plans to restore the glory of the nation itself. That includes giving her a new temple, new prophets, and a new spiritual awakening. And all of this will be done for Israel to prepare this nation for the arrival of Christ's earthly kingdom. That nation will be the very center of his kingdom. So I want us to see this together this morning. We'll work through the text, and then I'll offer some applications for the here and now. Beginning in verse 1, here we learn about the new temple. The Apostle John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Verse 2, But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city 42 months. Okay, let's pause there for now. The Apostle John wrote these words in A.D. 95. Now, you understand that in A.D. 95, there was no temple 
in Israel. There had been one about 25 years prior, but that temple had been destroyed by the Romans after a Jewish uprising. So there was no temple in the Holy Land, but here in Revelation chapter 11, as John is receiving this vision of the coming day of the Lord, he sees that his nation has a temple once again. John is even handed a measuring rod, and he's told to go measure the temple. So this is a real brick-and-mortar structure, and it's complete with an altar. There are even worshipers in it. Verse 2 even gives us the location of this future temple. It says it's in the holy city, that is, Jerusalem. That's exactly where the temple ought to be. And so again, I say there is going to be a new temple in the Holy Land one day. And it's not just Revelation 11 that teaches this. In fact, we find it as a theme throughout the Holy Scriptures. This future temple is prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 40, for example. There, the prophet Ezekiel is even told to go measure the temple, just like the Apostle John is told here in Revelation. This new temple is also promised in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 12. It's also mentioned by Jesus in the book of Matthew. The Apostle Paul even speaks of this future temple in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So there can be no doubt that there will be a temple in the Holy Land in the future, namely in this coming day of the Lord. But of course, this might raise a question in your mind. Why would God wished to erect a new temple in Jerusalem. After all, wasn't that old temple erected to offer sacrifices? And weren't those old sacrifices just foreshadowings of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Why would God want a new temple? Christ has come. He's made that sacrifice. What use would the temple serve? Well, friend, you are right to note that a major part of temple life before Christ was the offering of sacrifices, and you are right to note that those were prefiguring the sacrifice of Christ. And yet, that was not all that the Old Testament temple was about. That temple also stood in the midst of God's people in Israel as a testament to the fact that God was dwelling with his people. It was a, a monument to God's presence there with them. It was a sign of God's commitment to his people. And it was a center of worship. In fact, all of life was centered around that temple. Their spiritual life, their political life, every aspect, their cultural life, every aspect of, of their life was centered in that temple. That temple even housed the most precious documents of the Israelites. It held the Ten Commandments even. And so, yes, that temple included sacrifices, but it was also much more than that. It was a declaration that, that God is committed to his people, that he is dwelling with them, that he is their God, and they are his. Now, after Jesus came the first time, and he was rejected by the Israelites, they did not receive him as their Messiah, God allowed chastisement to fall upon this nation. He took away their temple, and to this day there is no temple in their land. 
God turned aside from them and he turned to the Gentile nations. This is the time that we're living in today. The scriptures call it the days of the Gentiles when the message of Jesus, the Messiah, is going to all the world. God's ancient people have not received him, but many others in the world will receive him. But friends, don't believe that because God has turned in chastisement from his ancient people that he will never turn to them again. No, God will turn his attention to them again. There will be a future awakening of these people. There's future glory in store for their ancient land. And the scriptures even tell us that when his earthly kingdom is finally inaugurated, Christ's throne will be right there at the temple. So it will, be, it will again be a center of worship and a center of spirituality and of politics and of all the rest. It'll become the center of the whole world in the coming earthly kingdom of Christ. But you'll notice verse 2 here, uh, John has told something interesting. He's told to go observe the temple, measure all the aspects of the temple. He's told to, to count the worshipers in the temple. But then verse 2, it says, but do not measure the outer court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, this reminds us of what time period we're looking at here in Revelation 11. This is a prophecy of the coming day of the Lord. It's not a prophecy of the earthly kingdom of Christ. The fact that there's a temple tells us we're in the day of the Lord. The fact that there are true worshipers there in the temple tells us that people are coming to faith in Christ. But the fact that he says, don't measure the outer courts yet, that's still given over to the unregenerate. It's a reminder we haven't reached the consummation yet. Kingdom of God has not yet come down to earth. There are still unregenerate trampling upon its courtyards. Indeed, it says trampling upon the entire holy city. It says they'll trample upon it for 42 months. That's 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's the entire time given to the great tribulation, as Jesus calls it in Matthew chapter 24. But this is a glimmer of hope. It's a hope that glory once lost will be restored one day. But now we move on to verse 3. We see not only does God have a new temple in store for his ancient people, he also intends to send them new prophets. And this is huge because the, the ancient people of God have not had a true prophet come to them for millennia. But God's going to send them prophets again. Look at verse 3. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, 42 months, three and a half years, same time period. And we just saw in verse 2. And they'll be clothed in sackcloth. So God is going to send prophets to the Holy Land once again. And John here gives us a synopsis of their ministry. He says they will preach with boldness for the full three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, those final three and a half years before Christ's coronation service. It says they will preach in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a symbol of, of sorrow or mourning. They'll be preaching in sackcloth because they are mourning the spiritual state of God's ancient people. They've rejected their Messiah. They are lost in their sins. They are 
stuck in the midst of this great day of the Lord. They are at risk of losing out on the kingdom of Christ. They're, they're at risk of experiencing all of God's final judgments. And so they wear sackcloth to communicate this. Throughout their 42 months of preaching in sackcloth, they will be preaching about repentance. They will be preaching about the need for faith. They'll be preaching that Jesus is their Messiah, that they must receive him. They'll be preaching the nearness of the kingdom of Christ. They'll be preaching that time is running out. The job of these prophets will be to spark a spiritual awakening among God's ancient people. Then verses 4 through 6, we find they'll also be empowered to perform signs and wonders, just as the Old Testament prophets did. Verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's a reference back to Zechariah chapters 1 and 2, a, a prophecy about the prophets. Then verses 5 and 6, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these two witnesses, these two prophets of God, they shall be there in the holy city. They shall be preaching in sackcloth. They'll be calling for national mourning and repentance and salvation. This passage tells us that as they're preaching, they're going to generate a lot of hostility from the unregenerate world. People are going to hate their gospel message. Friends, such is the state of the unregenerate heart. It will not of itself respond to the offer of salvation. There is hostility to the message. They begin fantasizing about how they can do away with these prophets, and there will undoubtedly be attempts to take the lives of these two prophets of God. But the passage says, these prophets shall have the power to perform signs and wonders. They shall be invincible for as long as God should determine that they must preach. They shall repel their foes. Anyone who seeks to cut them down shall be themselves cut down. These prophets will also have the power to affect the weather, to turn water to blood, to unleash plagues. These will be signs attesting to the truthfulness of their message. That's what the signs of the Old Testament prophets were for. It's why Jesus performed signs and wonders. They testified to the truth of the message preached. Now, friends, by this point, you might be wondering about the identity of these two witnesses. Who are these prophets that God will send? Who are these mighty preachers of righteousness, these workers of signs and wonders? Well, unfortunately, friends, our text does not give us the identity of the two witnesses. That's not stopped people from speculating, of course. So some have said this must be Enoch and Elijah. They say Enoch and Elijah because those are the only two prophets of the Old Testament era who never tasted death. The Old Testament scriptures tell us that those two prophets were simply caught up to heaven when their ministry was complete. Perhaps God will send those two back down at the end of time to complete their ministries. Others have said these two witnesses could be Moses and Elijah. 
That's because at the transfiguration of Christ, he appeared with Moses and Elijah. And you'll recall the transfiguration of Christ. That was Christ giving his disciples a glimpse of the glory of the coming kingdom of Christ. So maybe it's Moses and Elijah who will be these two witnesses. Or it could be two names that we've never heard of before. Perhaps two people saved during the day of the Lord whom God calls to this special role. We simply cannot know. All we know is there will be two of them. They will be genuine prophets of God. They will do all the works of true prophets of God. But then we notice verse 7. It says, and when they have finished their testimony, that's an important statement. When they have finished their testimony, that means when God has decided that their ministry is over and not before, when God has decided it's over, it says, then the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So friends, in these final, final years and months leading up to the coming of Christ, his coronation and the inauguration of his earthly kingdom, in those final months, these two powerful prophets will be preaching and performing their signs and wonders right up to the very end, right up to the time when Christ is going to come. And friends, right at that moment, God will decide that their work is now complete. Their work is complete. God will permit the beast to take their lives. They will become martyrs for the cause of Christ, just like so many others have become martyrs in the Lord's cause. Who is this beast? Well, this is the first of 36 references to the beast in the book of Revelation. When we look at all 36 passages together, a clear picture emerges. This is the Antichrist. This is that emerging world leader called Antichrist because he's opposed to all that Christ stands for. Here he's called a beast because he is irrational in his violence. He's said to arise from the abyss because he will be empowered by the devil himself. This beast shall have the power, when God says it is time, he shall have the power to cut these two witnesses down. Well, look what happens next, verses 8 and 10. It says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So the beast is going to cut down the two prophets of God, but then he's not even going to give them the dignity of a burial. He's simply going to leave their bodies in the streets, and for days those bodies will be left in the streets. Why would the beast do that? Well, he's going to do it to declare his supremacy over Christ and over the prophets of Christ. He will be showing that he is more powerful than even the prophets of God. And you see here that there will be a great celebration world over after these prophets are cut down. It says, for three and a half days, this is verse 9, for three and a half days some of the prophets and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They will be cut down and then the whole city of Jerusalem where they've been preaching, the whole city will rejoice over their demise. The city here, I think it was verse 8, compared to Sodom and Egypt. What a heartbreaking comparison for the holy city of God. Compared to Sodom because of the rampant immorality that will plague the city in those days. Compared to Egypt because they will be a place where God's people are oppressed. What a tragedy that the very capital city of God's chosen nation, the the home of the very temple of God, that it should be called the place like Sodom and Egypt. How tragic that God's ancient people should rejoice at the death of his own prophets. But it says the rejoicing will also go beyond Jerusalem, beyond the region of the Holy Land. It says all the world will be rejoicing at the demise of these prophets, for these prophets were a torment to all the people of the world. The way I picture it is that these prophets will be preaching for three and a half years, and their message is going to be broadcast all over the world so that all nations hear it. All nations will see these prophets. It'll be on television, on radio, on the internet, on whatever on whatever is available by way of mass media in those days. All will hear it and all will be tormented at the calls for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they will celebrate. They'll throw a party like the world has never seen when the news of their deaths are finally broadcast the world over. Think of that, my friends. The world will not be raging against the Antichrist in these days. They'll not be raging against the the demons from the abyss who are causing such torment. They'll not be raging at the sinful state of their own hearts, which have brought these judgments upon them. No, what will they be raging against? Preachers of righteousness. People seeking the salvation of their souls. That's who they will rage against. And when those preachers are finally dead, the unregenerate world will throw a party the likes of which the world has never seen. There will be singing and dancing and cheering and exchanging of gifts. Friends, such is the state of the unregenerate human heart. It calls evil good and good evil. It celebrates what it should mourn. It mourns what it should celebrate. This is the human heart apart from the grace of God. But you'll notice verses 11 to 13, the party will be short-lived. Verse 11 says, But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, that is, entered the two prophets, and they stood up on their feet. And then it says, Great fear fell on those who saw them. For three and a half years they preached. For three and a half years they were hated. Finally they were cut down and there was a great big party. But after about three and a half days of partying, they noticed the bodies in the street beginning to stir. And then they hear the lungs sucking in oxygen. And the hearts of the prophets start to beat again. And their eyes open wide and they stand. And you can imagine the live broadcasts around the world. Hold on, stop the celebration. They're moving again. 
They're standing up. They're up again. They're opening their mouths again. The party is cut short. Celebrations are through. And then the text says, verse 12, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they, that is the prophets, they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. The beast and his followers thought they had finally achieved the upper hand. These prophets were killed, their bodies left in the streets, their deaths celebrated by the multitudes, but God has had the final say. He has raised them from the dead. And what greater sign is there of God's presence than the resurrection of the dead? Look what happens next, verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city, that is Jerusalem, fell. 7,000 were killed in the earthquake. Some suggest the wording here would indicate 7,000 of the, the leading citizens of the city, those most anxious for the prophets to be killed. Then it says, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So the two prophets returned to heaven. There's a great earthquake following their departure. That earthquake indicates God's displeasure on the city that murdered them. Many are cut down in God's earthquake. But many, many people survive it. Many in the city, many in the region. Many around the world survive the earthquake. And it says, they, they who lived, they were stricken with terror. But then they gave glory to the God of heaven. And in the book of Revelation, giving glory to the God of heaven is another way of saying they came to saving faith. They came to saving faith. So a revival will break out in the Holy Land that results in a massive ingathering of God's ancient people. Right at the end of all things, right at the cusp, of the coronation of King Jesus, there will be a massive revival that breaks out, that saves God's ancient people. Finally, they will recognize Jesus to be their Messiah, and his return will be a joy for them. My friends, this passage teaches us that God has a, glorious store, has a glorious future in store for Israel. That plan of God includes giving them a new temple, sending new prophets among them, and subsequently to draw multitudes to faith in Jesus just before the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. Friends, that revived nation will then become the very heart the very heart of the kingdom of God on earth. Now we might ask the question, why is God planning this glorious future for Israel? Why would he do it? After all, God had, had been with this nation for generations and they had rejected him. He finally brought his son, Jesus Christ, into the world through them and they rejected Christ as their Messiah 
Why would God return to them after all of this? Well, friends, the answer is very simple. It's very simple. It's because God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. I explained this back in chapter 7. Allow me to explain it again now. You remember way back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, scriptures tell us that God came down and singled out a man called Abraham. And he didn't choose Abraham because Abraham was smarter, more pious than anybody else. No, it was simply his choice, a gracious choice. He singled out Abraham, and then he made Abraham an incredible promise. He said to Abraham, I want you to pack your bags, leave everything you've ever known, and I want you to follow me to a new land that I will show you, a promised land. God said, Abraham, if you do this, I will make of you a great nation. That's a promise of descendants. It's a promise of a land. I will make of you a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through it. They will be blessed through you, Abraham. The scriptures say that Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham packed his bags, and he took his household, and he left the land of Ur, the only land he'd ever known, and he went to the place where God showed him the promised land, the holy land. Abraham and his family settled there, and for generations the descendants of Abraham lived in that land, the land that God had promised. But then, friends, something happened. A famine raged across the Holy Land. This is generations after Abraham's time. Famine raged across the Holy Land, and so the descendants of Abraham decided to pack up their bags, move to Egypt. There was plenty of resources in Egypt, so they made their new lives there, and for generations they thrived in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus explains that one day a new pharaoh arose in Egypt, and he felt threatened by this ethnic and religious minority in his kingdom. And so he began curtailing the Israelites' freedoms. Eventually, they were reduced to chattel slavery. They cried out to God for mercy. They said, God, remember the promises you made to our forefather Abraham. Remember the promises you made to his children, to Jacob, to Isaac. Remember us in our distress. Save us. Rescue us, God. The scriptures say that God heard their prayer and he remembered the promises he had made to their forefathers and God rescued them from Egypt. He rose the prophet Moses up and through Moses led the Israelites out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, took them back to the promised land, back to the holy land. God gave them many laws and ordinances beginning with the Ten Commandments but then trickling down to every possible uh, law and ordinance. What God was doing was fashioning this ragtag group of former slaves into a nation. That's what the laws were for. And he turned that group of people into one of the most powerful nations in the history of the world. And under their kings, David and Solomon, they were truly glorious. Why was God so intent on making a nation of these people? Well, for a lot of reasons, but primarily 
because God intended to send his son Jesus into the world through that nation. He would come through the Jewish line. He would come through that nation, so he built the nation. He preserved it. He protected it and allowed his son to be born into it. Even as this nation repeatedly failed God, God continued to be faithful to them. And he continued to make more and more promises to them as the generations passed, like this promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said to King David, I will establish your throne forever. I will establish your throne forever. A promise of an everlasting nation and an everlasting kingdom and a promise of an everlasting throne, and that that throne would always be occupied by one of David's descendants. As the Old Testament scriptures came to a close, and Jesus came into the world, the greatest tragedy in human history occurred. The Israelites rejected their promised Messiah. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. God judged the nation for rejecting Jesus. He allowed their temple to be destroyed. He allowed their nation to be overrun. He allowed their people to be scattered all over the globe. And to this day, there's no temple in Israel. The majority of the Israelites are still scattered among the nations. The vast majority still have not bowed to Jesus as their Messiah. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. God turned from his ancient people and he took his message about Jesus to all of us. We are the beneficiaries of God's saving work today. This is the age of the Gentiles, but friends, God will turn back to his ancient people once again. Do not think that because God judged them for rejecting Jesus at his first coming that he is going to break all of the promises that he made to them. Don't think that because he's turned to the Gentile nations now that he's going to turn away from the Israelite nation forever. No, God always keeps his promises. Here are some of the promises God made to Israel. This one's from Isaiah 11. It says, The Lord will extend his hand to recover the remnant that remains of his people. He will reassemble the banished of Israel Regather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There's this promise, Jeremiah 31. I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. A great company. They shall return here to the Holy Land. I will lead them back, for I am a father to Israel. They shall be a nation before me forever. And this promise in Ezekiel chapter 11 Thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Ezekiel even promises a new temple being built in the Holy Land, one that persists forever and ever. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 43. It says, I saw the glory of God, the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. 
The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, quote, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever an everlasting nation, an everlasting people, an everlasting temple, an everlasting throne with a king from the line of David who will reign forever and ever. And friends, these are just the Old Testament promises. These things are reaffirmed in the New. Christ himself reaffirmed them in Matthew 19 and Luke 22. The Apostle Paul reaffirmed them in Revelation, excuse me, in Romans chapter 11, which we read earlier in the service. The Apostle Paul even reminds us in Romans eleven twenty nine 29 that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Once a promise is made, it cannot be altered or taken away. Bottom line here, friends, God made promises to Abraham, to his son Isaac, and to his son Jacob. He made promises to King David, to all the people of Israel. God made promises to his son Jesus the Messiah, and God will keep those promises. What we have here in Revelation chapter 11, right in the midst of these prophecies about the coming day of the Lord, what we have here is yet another reaffirmation that these promises will come to pass. The salvation of the Israelites, their regathering as a nation, their reception of a new temple, every last one of those promises will be fulfilled just as God said they would be. Friends, here's the significance of this for all of us. If God intends to keep his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and to his son and to all of Israel, we can be sure he's going to keep his promises to us as well. And he will keep them literally, exactly as he has laid them out in the scriptures. You can bank on it, friends, because that's the kind of God that he is. Friends, this ought to give us all great comfort as we face the trials of life. You understand that much of the Christian life is simply persevering in light of the promises of God. We... we have these, these promises from God about a resurrection body and citizenship and a coming kingdom and all of these great and wonderful promises. We persevere through the trials of the present because we believe those promises. Well, what Revelation 11 is teaching us is that we're never, we're never going to have this happen to us. We're never going to pass from this life to the next, see God in heaven and say, God, I made it. I'm ready to receive the promises. And God says, oh, you didn't take those literally, did you? You were, you were supposed to allegorize those. No, no, you were supposed to spiritualize those. No, those promises I made you, I actually intended them to be applied to somebody else besides you. No, he's, he's never going to do that. When God speaks, he means to be understood, and he speaks so as to be easily understood. He expects everything that he has said to be taken in their literal face value way. And so we can count on the fact that everything he has said to us, that we have believed in, they will come true for us. 
just as he's written it, just as we expect them to be fulfilled, they will be. Isn't that a comfort as you walk through the trials of life today? To know that there is a certain future, a future you can bank on because God has promised it to you. But then, friends, more than that, it should also give you great boldness in your Christian witness right now. You know, one of the remarkable things about the book of Revelation is how bold all of the witnesses for Christ are in this book. We see it over and over again. We see people who are being cut down left and right because of their faithfulness to God. They're bold in witness. We've seen these 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. That was back in chapter 7. Bold evangelists going all over the world preaching. We find the two witnesses here in Revelation 11 preaching right on through until martyrdom. Why is everyone so bold in their witness here in the book of Revelation? Well, friends, they are so bold because they have no doubt about the reality of God, of Christ as the Messiah, of the reality of their salvation and of the coming kingdom. They have no doubts that the promises of God will be fulfilled for them. And that gives them inner strength gives them what they need to preach and to witness boldly for Christ. Friends, we can preach and teach and witness with authority and with certainty too because we know the promises of God and we know they will come to pass. So friend, will you trust in God in these days? Will you trust in the promises of God in these days? Will you take comfort in these promises? Will you allow them to do their intended work within you, to strengthen your inner self, to make you more committed to Christ, to make you bold in your communication of Christ? Let the promises of God do their work in you, friend. Let's all pray together now and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us today. We thank you for your great and precious promises. We thank you for chapters of the Bible like Revelation 11, which shows us the fulfillment of promises that you made millennia ago. We see the promises you made, we see how they're going to be fulfilled, and we're given the assurance that you will fulfill them exactly as written, word for word. Lord, help that to do its work in us. Make us confident as we read about your future for us. Give us boldness. Help us to be brave witnesses in these difficult days. Use our witness to grow your church in this age. And help us, Lord, to build our expectancy for your son's coronation day for the great kingdom to follow. And we pray all of this in his name and for his honor. Amen.